When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you at Keswick in this glorious place. I wonder, as you come to Keswick, what are some of the things that you particularly enjoy? I wonder if you could think of a top three. I think for me, number one, it has to be the scenery. As you look around at well, we live on such a beautiful island, don't we? So many beautiful places, and this is one of the ones that I particularly enjoy. Uh, the shops here, so much to see, so much to, to look at, so much to taste. I've personally researched this illustration by eating sweet treats from as many of the shops as I could to tell you they are well worth checking out. And of course, the convention and the singing, how glorious to sing together as God's people. Christians have always, through history, across the world, in all cultures, sung together. And what a wonderful thing to be able to do that. John Stott, in perhaps one of the most popular Christian books of the 20th century, The Cross of Christ, spoke of Christians, the church, as a community of celebration. The community of celebration and the psalm we're looking at speaks of why this is the case. Psalm 32 verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Uh, Transgressions and sins, words speaking of the wrong things we have done and this verse speaking of complete forgiveness and the blessing of knowing that. That very first word, blessed. That may not be the word that people associate with Christianity. Blessed, a word meaning happy, meaning to be envied. We could almost translate it as The good life. This is the good life, says the psalmist. This is the life to be envied. This is the life to aspire to. The Christian life is a happy, blessed life. Jesus himself said, I have come that they may have life. And have it to the full. And the psalm invites us all here to know this joy and this blessing. But who is it for? How do we get this blessed life? What is the life that is most to be envied? I wonder how you think most people would answer that question. What is the life to be envied? What is the life to aspire to? Being rich, perhaps. 
being powerful, having influence and control. Maybe it's the high achievers. That's what we should be gunning for. Maybe we give a religious spin to it and we think it's those who are particularly churchy who receive the blessed life. Maybe those who are particularly moral have never put a foot wrong in their lives. The spiritual high achievers, maybe they're the ones who have the blessed life. But the psalm says something different. God says something different. Blessed are the forgiven. The forgiven, that is those who may not have been religious, who may have been very immoral, who might be spiritual failures, perhaps like the sinful woman in the passage we've heard read, but those who have come to God for forgiveness. That blessing is therefore available to everyone listening now. That blessing is available to all who come to God for forgiveness, which is wonderful news, isn't it? Wonderful news if ever you've broken even one of your own moral standards. Wonderful news if you've ever had that moment where you wish you could just take back that word you spoke. You wish you could just undo that thing you did. Wonderful news if you've ever wanted to hide anything you've done. Wonderful news if you've ever hoped that there might be the possibility of a second chance. This is why Christianity is is good news for all and and good news for the failed, for the shamed, for the for the outcast and the downtrodden. Christianity is not a religion for the elite, socially or spiritually. And actually, as a church, if ever we present it as such, we've moved away from the teaching of Jesus. He was a friend of the least, the last, and the lost. Actually, he came into this world to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to take away in his death our sins, to bear the punishment they deserve. Why? Because he loves us, because he wants to make this blessed life available. And so the choice is simple. We can try to carry our sins ourselves, try to do it in our own strength. But that is a heavy burden. And possibly in our best moments, we know we are only trying to kid ourselves. Or we can come to God for forgiveness. His arms are wide open. Christians here today, will we do this regularly, confess our sins to God, not pretending we're better than everyone else? Goodness me, we are certainly not better than everyone else. 
But maybe if you're listening and you're not yet persuaded about Jesus, well, wouldn't this invitation to the blessed life be a reason to find out more? Or maybe even make today the day you come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness that you may be part of this blessed life. Christianity is good news indeed. There is a reason why Christians sing. In Jesus we can know the blessed life, the good life, the life most to be envied. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. They asked me to come and try again. Well, we've, we've heard the summary. Verse 1, the blessing of forgiveness from this psalm that invites us to the, the joy of confession. Really, verses 1 and 2 are the, are the summary. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And in whose spirit is no deceit. And the, the rest of the psalm that we'll look at now, David spells out in more detail why that is the case. He speaks from his own experience and paints two pictures a picture of hiding and being burdened and wasting away, a bleak picture. And he paints a picture of joy and delight and freedom. And he speaks from his own experiences and he says, I was hiding my sin and life was burdensome. I confessed and I knew joy and blessing and delight. And as he paints these pictures, he wants to gently and wisely teach us that we might not follow his negative example But we might learn from him and be invited to the joy of confession, invited into these glorious songs of deliverance of which he speaks. Verses 3 to 5, he speaks of when he was hiding his sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I think when I kept silent here, the silence is not confessing his sin. He kept silent about his sin. He didn't own up. He didn't admit it. We don't know what sin's in view here. Actually, with the Psalms, we'll find that's often the case. We don't get all the specifics. I think, I think it's a week and more easily identify with the situation. But of course, the incident with Bathsheba would be one opportunity we might, we might think of where this could have been appropriate. David, probably for nearly a year, had taken Bathsheba, though she was another man's wife, had had her husband killed, and for nearly a year he just tried to conceal this fact until Nathan the prophet confronted him and rebuked him. 
Perhaps there was another situation in view that prompted David to tell us this story of how he, he sinned, but he tried to hide it. He tried to bury it, perhaps conceal it from himself even, and certainly conceal it from God. And maybe we know such a tendency in our own hearts. We've done something wrong. We, we know it's wrong, but we perhaps try and persuade ourselves it wasn't so bad. We perhaps try and just, just paper over it rather than bringing it to the Lord. Well, how did that go, David, this hiding your sin? Well, David tells us it was a time of the Lord's hand upon him, his bones wasting away. His strength dried up like in the heat of summer. I think the image there, it could be my juices were dried up like a plant in the scorching summer heat with no water and no shade and just vitality goes from it and it shrivels and it withers and it is no longer flourishing as it should have been. David says, that was my life when I was trying to hide my sin from the Lord. Vitality gone, not flourishing, but shriveling. Of course, we need to get our theology straight at this point. We must be very clear, not every aspect of suffering is due to our own sin. Jesus himself was very clear about that when there was the man who was born blind and someone asked Jesus, well, who, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. Jesus discourages us from making the link, that direct link between a sin we commit and the suffering we experience. And how vital that is as we walk with others who are suffering and as we think about ourselves. There is much suffering in this world that is not because that person has sinned. We mustn't be like Job's comforters and apportion blame, making life worse for the sufferer when they might just be experiencing a broken world or they might be experiencing others who have sinned against them. How important it is sometimes to say to people, it is not your fault what has happened to you. But here David makes an equally vital point. There are some situations, and for him this was one, when his suffering was because he was hiding and concealing his sin. I mean, some sins are obviously damaging. If we misuse drugs or alcohol, we can see how naturally that would have consequences. But we need to realize that all sin is damaging to others and to ourselves. In particular, there is the burden of unconfessed sin, which takes a toll not just on our mind, but even on our bodies, David says. David has learned from bitter experience. The pain of hiding his sin from the Lord. And he wants to call those around him. He wants to call us 
here not to make that same mistake. Just think for a moment of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You remember they were told not to eat from that one tree, but they saw it looked appealing and so they took and they ate. They sinned. And what happened then? Well, they hid. The Lord was walking in the cool of the day, but rather than joining the Lord in this glorious picture of peace and harmony and relationship, they were hiding behind a tree, trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, anxious and ashamed. Actually, instead of going out from the garden to to fill and subdue the earth, to to bathe in the oceans and discover far-off mountain peaks. They were hiding, anxious and ashamed. What should they have done? Well, just imagine if they had done the hard thing of just owning up, standing there naked before the Lord, Painful though that must have been, and say, we deliberately did what was wrong. We have no excuse. But we look to you for mercy. The rest of the Bible's story will show us how God responds to that kind of owning up. But no, they... Here, they tried to sew together fig leaves. I don't know if you've ever seen a fig tree. Many years into my life before I first saw a fig tree. I'd known the story from Genesis. And I think for many years, I assumed that fig leaves were one of the world's best fabrics for creating clothes. And then you see fig leaves and you realize they're quite large leaves. But the point, I think, is surely this. You cannot clothe yourself properly. These fig leaves didn't work for Adam and Eve. It didn't conceal their shame. It didn't deal with their anxiety. And the same is true for us today. Our fig leaves will not work. Whatever those fig leaves might be that we we sometimes use to try to cover up the things we've done, to, to persuade God and others we haven't done anything, even to persuade ourselves, whether it be distraction. If I distract myself enough, I won't have to deal with the remembrance of what I've done. Uh, busyness, perhaps. Maybe even righteous deeds. Christian experience, church conferences perhaps, and we might try to use these things, I do enough of those and I can just about cover my own sin and shame. And rather than walking in fellowship with the Lord, enjoying him, the source of life, we, we hide behind the tree, anxious and ashamed. David wants to say to us, will we do what he did 
in verse 5. Acknowledge our sin. Admit. Sometimes just naming it is the hardest thing. Acknowledge our sins. Not cover up our iniquity, but uncover. And confess our sins to the Lord. David knows that's a hard path. But the rest of the psalm, he explains why we would do such a thing. Look at the result. He says, I I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And almost the next words can't come quickly enough for David. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Instant forgiveness. That's the second picture. The first picture is of David hiding his sin like Adam and Eve hiding behind a tree in misery. But now we have this picture of the delight, the joy, the freedom of being forgiven. Notice how words get picked up through the psalm. Verse 5, David says, I didn't cover up my iniquity. David didn't cover up himself. He, he uncovered before the Lord. But look what the Lord does, verse 1, whose sins are covered. David didn't try and cover himself with fig leaves. He let the Lord cover his sins. Rather than trying to carry the burden himself, David came to the Lord and the Lord forgave his sins or that word forgave in verse 1 could be lifted away. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are carried not by me but by the Lord. And of course what, what greater meaning than David we have as we know the one who carried those sins for us. The one who bore those sins in our place the one against whom God did count our sins if we put our trust in him Jesus Christ carried our sins so we don't have to actually Jesus was was uncovered naked and ashamed on the cross he bore that so that we can be clothed in his righteousness So David says, therefore let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Let all God's people pray to you. And I think here the prayer is that prayer of confession. Let all God's people confess their sins because of the great delight that results. David says, surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. David speaks of this delight of forgiveness. These rising waters, I think there might be a future sense and a present sense to these words. The the, the future, final judgment. As Paul says in Romans, there is no Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, I don't know what the things you have done might be that you just feel this might be the thing that rules me out. This might be the thing that, yes, Jesus died for the sins of his people, but not 
this sin, not me. Perhaps something you've barely admitted to yourself, let alone admit to others, let alone admit to God. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We open up to God, admit what we've done because because this is what the God who we confess to is like, a God who delights to forgive our sins. Whatever we've done that we think might disqualify us, Jesus' words on the cross that we've just sung, it is finished. We might understand those words, fully paid, dealt with, no condemnation. I need those words preached to my soul day after day, week after week, Keswick Convention after Keswick Convention. What glorious news, what glorious hope on that final day we will have nothing to answer for. God will not bring those sins up now. He will not bring them up in the life to come. Fully paid. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wonder if there may be a sense of this life as well. When, when waters rise, maybe there's also just the troubles of this life. And we read the Psalms of David's experience, we know that troubles will come. But David can say, these waters will not overwhelm me. My identity is secure. If God has dealt with my greatest problem, I can trust him for everything else. But this is where this Psalm has been has been blowing my mind as I've been preparing it, as I've been praying through it, as I've been trying to apply it to my own life. These are truths I know that God forgives. But this psalm highlights and showcases like a glorious diamond God's delight to forgive our sins. David says, you will surround me with songs of deliverance. And who's singing those songs? Who sings the songs of deliverance? Well, surely God's people, forgiven sinners like me, can sing, as we've been doing tonight, can sing songs of how God has set me free. But we know from Jesus' parables in the New Testament of the the lost son, there is more rejoicing in heaven when a sinner turns to God. The angels sing these songs of deliverance. Does anybody know? Do people know the app What Three Words where you can locate a place anywhere on the earth using just three words? People don't know it. It's, it's an app where rather than having to give postcodes, the whole world is divided into these, these sort of 10-meter squares, I think. And every 10-meter square has a unique code, which is just three simple words. And if you know those words, they identify one place. Do you know what the what three words for the pencil factory are? 
cherubs seeking crowd. You could not believe that, could you? Cherubs seeking crowd. The angels are singing songs of deliverance. The angels are praising Christ who has died for his people and they are seeking a crowd to join in with those songs and celebrate our Lord who has done this. And David says, will we join that crowd? Will we join... Not hiding, trying to do it on our own, hoping we can do enough good deeds to get through. And the anxiety and the misery that brings us. Will we join the crowd and say, on my own I can do nothing, Lord. I'm going I'm to do the hard thing of opening up and saying, yes, I have sinned, but will you cleanse me and know the joy and the freedom of the songs of the angels singing, it is finished. Holy, 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 you are worthy to receive all honor and glory, for you were slain and by your blood you purchased men and women from every tribe and language, cherubs seeking crowd. The angels are singing, but not just the angels. God himself. The prophet Zephaniah speaks of the Lord who quiets his people with love. And he rejoices over us with singing. Forgiving sinners. Forgiving people like you and me. It's not a distasteful thing that God does, but from a distance. It's not something he does because he promised to, but it's something he just keeps at arm's length because the whole thing is burdensome and wearying. No, it is the thing that makes his heart sing. He delights to forgive his people. We heard yesterday, didn't we? God is my redeemer and he's good at his job. How important it is to know that God is my redeemer and he's good at his job. And Psalm 32 adds to that saying God is my redeemer and he delights to do his job. I sometimes picture the angels in heaven as they are just hearing for the first time of what God the Son is going to do. Can you imagine two angels discussing and they say, well, have, you heard what, have you heard what he's going to do? Have you heard what our Lord is going to do? He's, he's going down there. He's going down there. He's, he's going to be with them. He's, he's going to dwell with them. But have, have you heard what he's also going to do? He, uh, the creator of life is going to become human so that he can die for them to bring them up here to be with us. And one angel says, that is just, that's just unthinkable, isn't it? That's unthinkable that he should do that. And we might imagine the other angel turning to him and saying, well, given what we've seen of our Lord, 
Isn't that exactly the sort of thing we'd expect him to do? Isn't that exactly the sort of thing we'd expect him to do? He is so loving. He is so compassionate. We'd never make it up, but we see him going to the cross and we think, yes, there is nothing more in character for God to do. And if you're like me, when you've sinned, when you've failed, and you think, God will just be angry. God will, this will be one step too far. We turn to the Lord and we see a God who is joyful to forgive and receive and welcome. God loves to forgive his sin, to forgive our sins. It is what makes his heart sing. I think that's the context for the the final few verses, verses 8 and 9 onwards. Uh, Suddenly the, the voice changes in the psalm. I think we hear the Lord speaking here. Saying, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or mule. I think the first half of the psalm has spoken, God loves us so much he forgives our sin. And that invitation to confession. And here it is God's same love for his people. That means that we should walk in these good and life-giving paths he instructs us. David's saying, don't be so stubborn as to not confess your sins. But also, don't be so stubborn as to refuse to walk in God's good paths. When we, when we get God's character right, I think that's what, what binds these things together. When we get God's character right and see that he is really good. In the face of Christ, we see a God of love. And that is what gives us confidence to confess our sins, that what gives us the desire to live these holy lives. And so as David concludes this, this teaching to his people then, to us here today, he presents these two ways, many of the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him These two pictures, the picture of hiding in shame, trying to cover ourselves, anxious and burdened. Or the picture of walking with God in joy and freedom, the delight of forgiveness, the delight that we know to stand before the Lord, not covering ourselves but clothed in his righteousness, the delight that he has to forgive us and cleanse us. And so David concludes, rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous. Who are the righteous in verse 11? It can't be the perfect, given everything else David has said. It means the forgiven. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you righteous, you forgiven people. Sing all you upright in heart. The joy of the Christian life is not for the perfect but for the forgiven. And so will we not try and cover ourselves, but come to the Lord and confess? 
to open up, to take that hard path. Maybe some of us need to take some time this week to just sit before the Lord quietly, maybe for an extended period, and just say, Lord, search me. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Those are the final words of Psalm 139. In our family, we pray those words together every evening as we try to confess our sins and make sure we're uncovering before the Lord so we can be covered by him, so we can be glad, so we can rejoice, so we can shout for joy. And as we do, know that our joy is but a pale imitation of the joy of God himself and the angels in heaven, of the God who loves to forgive his people. Forgiving his people, forgiving you, people of the Keswick Convention, is what makes Jesus' heart sing. Amen.